0: Health Canada is updating the decade old food guide.
1: C-c-c- Canada's new food guide. Long awaited update to Canada's food
0: guide.
2: Let's get Mikey, he won't need it, he hates
3: everything. It's
0: real, come on! I mean, what would happen if I ate nothing but McDonald's for 30, 30 days straight? It's the diet you've all been waiting for. Hey, so you're interested in starting intermittent fasting? The keto diet, it sounds
3: like the magic formula.
4: The environmental impacts of the food system are daunting. It's, it's responsible, responsible for about
3: a quarter of our greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions. emissions. What we're going to try today are the first thin slices of steaks we have produced in a lab setting.
5: Is it just us, or do you find yourself overwhelmed with all the information out there about what, when, and how much you should be eating? We all know that we should eat a healthy, balanced diet, but what does that really mean in practice? It's definitely not as easily done as it is said. When you're stressed or have a lot of work to do, or are just tired, it's much easier to just simply pick up something or order in. On the other end of the spectrum, there seem to be an increasing number of people who are taking their nutrition to the other extreme, with strict diets that cut out all sugar or involve fasting. Today we're going to explore different aspects of nutrition and diet, including common misinformation and evolving recommendations for a general healthy diet, released in Canada's new food guide just last month. We're also going to talk about some of those interesting diets that we seem to be hearing more and more about, like the keto diet or intermittent fasting. Finally, where is the future of food going, as we continue to learn more? Have you heard of meatless meat or nutrigenomics? Don't worry, we've got you covered. Hi listeners, I'm Grace, and welcome to Raw Talk Podcast's 55th episode. We first wanted to learn a bit more about Canada's new food guide and what this means for health for Canadians, so I spoke with Dr. Carol Laughelman, a co-founder of the Canadian Clinicians for Therapeutic Nutrition. This group advocates for evidence-based dietary guidelines and education and did a lot of work to try and make sure that the development of our recent food guide followed and reflects this approach. Carol hasn't always been an advocate for nutrition, though, and is also an anesthesiologist at St. Michael's Hospital here in Toronto. I myself
4: grew up in the 80s in school where we learned the Canada Food Guide. And I went to medical school in the 90s where we learned the Canada Food Guide. And I tried to apply the Canada Food Guide to my own life and health. And um, there was a point where I was trying to shift some baby weight. And the baby was four years old, so it didn't really qualify anymore. But I went to the medical literature and I read the... um, most recent reviews and what should be done. And indeed it said you should eat less and move more. So I tried doing that and I did a lot of extra exercise and I did further cut down fats, as they said that I was supposed to do. And instead of losing weight, I put on weight. And I had a lot of hunger at the same time because exercise makes you hungry, you work up an appetite. Uh, And I was talking to one of my other anesthesia colleagues, explaining the challenges that I was facing, and she said, oh, you should try the paleo diet. And I knew that that was something that she was doing, and I thought, oh yeah, sure, that goes against everything. All that saturated fat, that's going to be bad for me. There's no way that I can do that. So the paleo diet is a way of eating that mostly removes the processed foods from one's diet, And in doing so, you end up eating more fat to make up the caloric difference. Because if you focus on whole foods, that's what's present. You've got the same kind of amount of protein that you're eating, there's more fat and less ultra processed carbohydrates. So it looks on papers if you're doing the wrong things if you believe the paradigm that we grew up in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s with. And the other thing that the Paleo people do is that they try to recreate the kind of foods that you would have eaten in the Paleolithic times. So they also don't eat dairy. But I wasn't about to give up dairy. So I started to look at like, well, what's the science underlying it? Because I saw enough people being able to apply those kinds of that structure to the way that they eat to get benefit. They, they leave the Western diet pattern and they move to something that is less processed and they begin to find improved nutritional health, body health, sleeping decrease acne, decreased signs of PCOS, polycystic ovarian, like there's a bunch of things that people were saying were getting better. And so I went to see if there any science behind this. And lo and behold, there have been researchers all along saying, wait a minute, don't drop the fat in your diet, but do drop the ultra process and easily absorbable sugars that contribute to your diet and see what happens and so then I followed well what happens next if you do that if you put less on your plate less in your mouth if less gets to your gut what happens at the next step Well, as it turns out, your hormones change in their response to the food that you eat. And so instead of making this a willpower focused eat less, move more, you reframe and retrain your body to express the normal hormonal responses that we probably through wisdom figured out which foods were good for us, that we abandoned in a large part since the 70s when they told us to eat low fat because low fat really doesn't taste good. Low fat requires additives in order for it to be palatable and unfortunately those additives tend to trigger one to eat more or leave them leave you only full for a shorter period of time. Many people have an experience of hanger. Hanger is the 2.5 hour hour uh, feeling that you get when your professor is talking for a little bit longer than maybe you had anticipated and the cereal and skim milk that you had for breakfast has sort of passed into your system and been partitioned because that's what your body's supposed to do. But now you're left because of your internal hormones with sort of this energy deficit and it, and it, you get a clear message saying you better find something else to eat more quickly And you don't get that if you're eating a nutritious, satiating, and satisfying first meal of the day. You really change what hormones um, come into play at the next meal. It's interesting where that came from. That came from messages for people who were using uh, insulin to manage their type 1 diabetes. If your insulin only lasted a certain amount of time, then you needed to eat again, otherwise you were actually at risk of having a mismatch between your energy availability and insulin activity. So we changed a very specific instruction for a small subset of the population and moved it to a global message. And that's what I'm afraid that we're doing currently with the global message.
5: Carol's discussed the health benefits of cutting out processed foods and focusing on eating a high-fat, low-carb diet, which is the opposite of what we're often told. What's really happening in our bodies when we intake carbohydrates, though? One of the most important hormones in our metabolism is insulin.
4: Yes, so we're going to move into um, a hormone-centric way of looking at the way that your body mass is distributed. And uh, the master hormone in all of this is insulin. And insulin goes up in response to your carbohydrate load, primarily a little bit to protein, very little bit to fat. And what you want mostly from all of your hormones across your body is a spike in response to stimulus and then a fall. And I've just put my finger in the air for the listeners, and I've put it back down again. And if you can imagine that that would happen each time that you eat, you want your insulin level to fall again. Because insulin is a fat storage hormone. Everybody knows the effect of insulin on sugar, that's to stuff sugar into cells so that you don't have too much glucose in your blood system. But that's not its only effect, it has multiple effects at different levels along that y axis of my finger going up and down. And so what happens over time is if you are insulin sensitive, and you eat a meal that your body can respond to the load of carbohydrate that's in there, your insulin will spike and your insulin will come down. And it's the at where it comes down, that stops storing fat and actually allows the lipases in your fat cells to let go of the stored energy so that you can convert now back to burning fat. Because most people's metabolic rate is completely covered by aerobic processes which run on fat through your mitochondria. It's not a glycolytic life that we're leading as humans. Uh, unless you're sprinting, and you can only do that for very short amounts of time. What happens, though, is if your next feed, if you think about that falling insulin level, if your next feed comes too quickly, you eat a donut at the first meeting of the day, your insulin has to respond again. So your pancreas has to sense the sugars coming by, let the insulin out to, again, decrease the amount of sugars in your bloodstream because the amount of sugars in your bloodstream is a thing that we're trying to keep in a very tight homeostatic um, um, amount area or numbers. And if you never got to the point of where your insulin fell, then you've just stored and stored. So you've got two storage episodes with your two feeding episodes and have never released. If that happens again, if that happens again, And if that happens again, now your baseline insulin never gets to the point of decreasing enough to allow the lipases in your adipocytes to release your other alternative fuel, your resting fuel. Now you're running on the fuel that is supposed to help you run specifically. And when that goes through your mitochondria, you actually make more reactive oxygen species not so good for inflammation. It says at the cell level to become insulin resistant. So like we have lots of fuel in this cell now. You can save it for something else. We don't want it here. And as that happens to each of the different tissues, and that will happen at different amounts, and again, different levels on the y-axis of insulin, you end up having this storage only and a resistant response at the cellular level. So if you keep doing this over and over and over again, and it's easy to do in the Western food environment, if you have a low-fat cereal with some low-fat milk and some juice, thankfully juice is out of the Canada Food Guide now, so hopefully Nobody's having juice. But if you walk down the street, there are lots of juice places that are open commercially that don't look empty when I walk by them. So people are still drinking this. We can say one thing, but people's behavior and what drives that behavior is pretty interesting. But people's behavior is different. If over time you keep your insulin level high, you have hyperinsulinemia. Your insulin resistance is high. You need more released over time and more tissues become insulin resistant. So when you look now at research, there's insulin resistance of the brain, insulin resistance of the bone, of the synovium, of the kidney, of the liver, of the fat cells. And then what do those fat cells do? They get overstuffed, they start secreting their own cytokines, they start changing the chatter between Uh, your fat and your muscles muscles have their own signaling um, molecules so muscles have their own signaling molecules myokines and you change the way that your body runs and you change it away from a fat burning mode so you're now you're reliant on sugar that changes your behavior you're you can't access it you become hungry you eat what's available walk down the street You're going to have that same stimulus again. So really the Western food environment seems to be the vector of these diseases. And because insulin receptors are on all those different tissues, they all display abnormal phenotypes. Which one you display as outside disease depends on you. So there are some women who in their teens will already have polycystic ovarian syndrome and that is related to hyperinsulinemia. We have cystic acne, hydradenitis superativa, that's another skin condition, affects both men and women. These are not diseases of old age, which used to be called sugar diabetes, right? Your great grandparents, they would build up over time. So their insulin spikes kept going, their tissue insulin resistance, which does seem to increase as you age, would start to add up, and you would see people develop these diseases in their 60s and 70s. We have teenagers with type 2 diabetes.
5: To learn more about the changing hormone levels and our body's response to carbohydrates, James sat down with Dr. David Jenkins, who created the Glycemic Index. He's a university professor at U of T and a physician scientist at St. Michael's Hospital in the realm of nutritional sciences. His research focuses on the relationship between food and diabetes and cardiovascular diseases.
3: Could you tell us what exactly is the glycemic? Well, it's
2: simply looking at the degree to which the blood glucose rises after a meal, rises and falls after a meal. In other words, the hump in blood glucose that you get after a meal. Do different foods produce different humps? Does all carbohydrate produce the same hump? And if so, and if they are different, can you standardize it? So all we did was standardize the postprandial rise and fall in blood glucose over a two-hour period for normals and a three-hour period for diabetics. Uh, We standardized it against initially glucose, but that was really not very palatable. So I've preferred to have a standard white bread, which gives a, a pretty similar um, blood glucose response always on the glucose scale. On the glucose scale, white bread is usually seventy-one. So that if you adjust the white bread to a hundred, then all the foods then become either above white bread or below white bread. It's also not only easier to test. In other words, you have to test these, these, these. Um, these glycemic indices in groups of human beings, in others groups of people, look at the test and then they, they, they take the test and they take the control. And we look at the, the, the test food over the standard food, in other words, glucose or white bread, and multiply that by 100. So it's just the percentage rise mm. that one gets against the standard most people don't drink glucose and, and never come across it in their diet so it's, it's sort of almost an irrelevance. It's good for academics but not very good for practical instruction of patients. Nobody's going to remember the glycemic indices of different foods and that's why I think one's taken this more academic topic and tried to make it more easily accessible to ordinary people so that if I say to you that in general beans, peas, lentils, legumes, pulses have a low glycemic index that's good enough for you you can then realize that if you could have a lentil stew or soup or chickpeas or hummus and you would probably be getting low glycemic index food they're not going to raise your blood glucose that much and if i say to you and I, i i say it advisedly that if you take processed foods and and if you take processed breakfast cereals which don't have much fiber in them then you will get a very high rise in blood glucose. And if you take something like potatoes or rice on average they will be just about the same as bread perhaps a little bit lower for some and for the glutinous rice that you get in your Chinese restaurant you can pick up in your chopsticks because that's a little more hydrated that actually gives a bigger rise in blood glucose because the digestive juices can get to it and attack it more readily. And fruit uh, especially temperate climate fruit apples oranges and these sort of things tend to be a lower glycemic index so uh, fruit vegetables beans peas lentils mm-hmm. things like pumpernickel bread mm-hmm. um the german type heavy rye breads with whole grains in them they tend to be digested more slowly and they give a, a flatter blood glucose rise and interestingly so does pasta by, by comparison with bread so pasta is tends to be lower than bread regardless of say whole grain or white regardless of white or brown in fact white or brown in terms of bread doesn't make much difference the brown obviously one thinks is better because it's got more minerals it's got more protein in it so I mean I would always advocate brown irrespective of glycemic index but pasta is interesting and pasta is probably a very good food the problem with pasta is it's very difficult to restrict in other words if you see a serving of pasta on a plate you'll be said you tell someone that's just too little no one eats a, pa- a serving of pasta so you eat two or three or four servings of pasta at one go so that's where pasta's got the bad name it's not because it, it's a bad food it's a good food but it's it's just too tasty
5: right now you mentioned the
3: benefits of legumes earlier and just context in this room where this a bit of cans of... Cans of peas. Yeah. Well, we
2: try and make sure that patients, when they go away, they, they, they take some with them. Okay. Just to, to educate them, basically, go and take right. some, go and try them. Because many people have never eaten beans and beans and lentils. They, they think that's just prison food.
5: <laughs> As we mentioned, a new version of Candace Food Guide was just released this January to replace the previous 2007 one. This version is a lot simpler, with a single plate with many different images of food types within the three categories. Recommendations are that half of your diet is vegetables and fruits, a quarter protein, and a quarter whole foods. They've done away with specific serving sizes, having dairy as its own food group, and recommend a reduced meat intake. There's also a part of the guide on healthy food habits that encourage cooking at home, being mindful of what you eat, and eating with others as often as you can. There's a clear consensus that is a step forward in providing more accurate and healthy information to Canadians, and there's been a lot of praise that the guide is less industry-influenced. We asked our guests what they did and didn't like about the new guide.
4: So I do think there are several areas that they got very right. One is Canadians need to learn how to cook. We have lost generations of um, people to easily prepared meals which are often (laughs) food-based, not whole food-based. So If more Canadians knew how to prepare a simple, nutritious, uh, nutrient-dense meal, that would go a long way already in reclaiming the sort of kind of diet that sustained us for millennia. I think that the uh, caution against sugars and severe limitation of sugars, especially to young Canadians, is a big step forward When we were there at Health Canada, they said, well, we did the same scientific review and ended up with low sugars, so you like that, right? And we said, yes, we do like that. You don't need to change it. But we think a full scientific review would have also found that. So we don't want them to change that, that's for sure. I think that getting rid of juice is a great idea. Getting rid of sugar-sweetened beverages is a great idea. Uh, Getting rid of chocolate milk from schools is a great idea. We have a reversal of that decision in one of the maritime provinces recently, which was a big disappointment, and that was a political decision. But it's not a decision for health, so much better is to substitute all those drinks with water. And if you're going to
5: include dairy in your diet... Whole fat milk, not skim milk. With the release of the previous 2007 food guide, there was also an Indigenous-specific food guide released for First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. The main differences between these were the presence of more traditional meats and foods such as bannock. The new food guide is considered a step forward because it acknowledges the social, cultural, and historical factors that can affect Indigenous people. It includes an emphasis on including culture and food traditions in their recommendations for healthy eating habits. There is also talk of plans to create more distinct food guide versions that are resource-specific to geographic region, as well as translated into local Indigenous languages. However, there is pushback that the plate of food doesn't represent frozen alternatives for Canadians that don't have access to fresh options, or examples of the culturally diverse food that is eaten across Canada. Carol talks about the importance of this, and acknowledging that Canadians come from diverse backgrounds. Also, if you want to hear more about Indigenous perspectives on health in general, take a listen to our recent episode, number 53. We
4: think that their messaging on traditional foods for the Indigenous population is excellent. I think that in addition to the lost ability to cook those foods, the lost cultural aspects that came along with that, the procurement of the foods, the um, sharing of the foods... I think that a move back towards that would be great. But each Canadian comes from their own cultural heritage, a way of eating. That I think if you went back and looked at what made your great-grandparents healthy, if you were to adopt something like that in the Canadian context, then you'd probably find yourself either staying nutritionally healthy or moving back towards health. Eating with others, being social... Um, is a really good thing. So they have chosen a single dietary pattern of eating and are trying to apply it to the whole population while we have evidence that the current population, approaching 88% of us, already can't tolerate the amount of carbohydrate that's on that plate. We think that their messaging, with their pictures at least, around their whole grain category actually has a large number of refined grains within it. People aren't eating wheat berry salad. They are eating uh, what they think is whole wheat pasta, which is still a highly refined grain product. And even some of those fruits that are there, if you're metabolically unwell, it's going to be too much for you based on that insulin centric hypothesis.
5: We now turn back to Dr. Jenkins for his thoughts on our new food guide. Dr. Jenkins has long been active in advocating for a healthier diet for Canadians by formulating nutritional guidelines for the treatment of diabetes as well as the food industry by working with Loblaws in the development of their blue menu products.
2: I think what they've emphasized is plant foods, fruit, vegetables. They've also really made a, a push not to have too much refined carbohydrate foods which tend to be high glycemic index. So they've, they've cut those down a little bit. They've suggested eating more plant protein foods, which tend to reduce the postprandial black glucose response to a meal. So in a way, what they've done is they've been a little bit more specific than previous guides in making a diet more low glycemic index than one would have got normally. And I think what they've done too is they've done a responsible thing in really emphasizing the plant food component of your diet which is new and they've had a certain amount of flack obviously from the Canadian meat council and the dairy farmers Uh, they've obviously objected to the fact that they've been as it were downgraded in terms of importance but I do think that that was not an unexpected move it's happening internationally and Canada's simply going along with what is the science internationally. It's not sticking its head in the sand, as it were, and still doing what it was always doing. But always when there's change, some people get distressed and one one feels sympathetic for the people whose jobs uh, may be uh, in jeopardy. I think that, that they went as far as you can go. I think one can only do these things incrementally. And I think they probably thought that making their first statement you should eat more fresh fruit, vegetables, whole grain cereals, legumes, and concentrate on plant proteins, that was a big departure from the previous. And I think so it's, uh, I just hope, and they do have one sentence, which I would have liked to have been two or three sentences, they have one sentence talking about mentioning the word environment actually in the in the food guide and I think that's important because I think other nations have been doing that and I think Canada will have to step up and this is one of the one of the concerns that for example the beef industry may be responsible for 14 percent of uh, of greenhouse gas it's one of the major agricultural contributors to greenhouse gas emissions so again uh, these things have to be understood
5: The release of the new food guide comes at a critical time as chronic diseases such as type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease that can be prevented or greatly reduced by proper diet become more and more prevalent.
4: Right now, 57% of the calories of teenagers in Canada come from ultra-processed foods. So if you eliminate those foods, and they did this in a randomized control trial and in teenagers who had fat signs of fatty liver disease if you get rid of the ultra processed not even go very low carb they still let them eat things like bagels but they didn't let them have pop you can see reversal of these conditions so what's great is that your underlying evolutionary heritage what you have gotten from your great grandparents is just waiting to have the right nutritional signals presented to you, and then you can respond. It can't all be as simple as that. People are also looking at the microbiome changes that happen. They're discovering new communications between your gut and your brain, between the neurotransmitters that are made from your gut and end up
5: affecting your behavior in your brain. It's exciting that negative consequences from poor diets can be reversed with a change in behavior and food choices. Carol told us more about her experience with how high-fat, low-carb diets can be helpful for improving health and how her advocacy work with Canadian clinicians for therapeutic nutrition is making an impact.
4: But I do see enough times and enough evidence that this sort of approach can be a therapeutic, very powerful tool for people. And Canadians are doing it right now with or without their physicians. And so as part of my... um, outreach I guess my advocacy is to create capacity within the Canadian healthcare providers and as such we created Canadian clinicians for therapeutic nutrition providing a space for people to really question our training question the current paradigm and see why are my patients getting better not following what I learned Everyone remembers back to their first week in medical school where they say 50% of what you learn is incorrect in medicine. And you just need to know, if you only knew which 50% that was, well, this is a big part of the 50%. And if we can do a course correction, if we can put people on a different path and say, it's okay to try this, I will follow you as you do this, that's very empowering for patients. And as I said, there's a large movement out there, of people who are doing it, and they want physicians to be there and supportive of them in trying this. So we're supporting each other in trying to um, look critically at the science and apply or teach our colleagues about this new sort of insulin centric model hormone centric model get away from the eat less move more model and see why it didn't work and see what are the limitations of this as well it's there are some people who can remain insulin sensitive and they don't get that insulin resistance no matter what they eat we all know those kind of people but even those people as they age sometimes get have beef thin on the outside fat on the inside cytokine storm from their belly fat and that sort of thing but anyway it's not for everybody there's estimated 12 percent of the people who don't need this
5: So what was the process like to create the new food guide? Were decisions about what was considered healthy informed by scientific evidence?
4: We tried to impress upon Health Canada and the MPPs, or or sorry, MPs, that if you do good science, you'll get good policy. And good science means looking at studies. And we compared that to what they did and that was to read reports. They read reports about the dietary guidelines for Americans and they compared Canada's message and their message and if it matched they declared that strong evidence. But that's not going back to primary studies. Then they did the same thing for the World Health Organization and what we think a better way would be to do a large systematic review using the accepted ways of studying other studies rather than the reports of other um, other groups. And um, we want it to be done by people who have very little skin in the game. So it would be best to have people who are trained in epidemiology but really hadn't done any nutrition work up until this point because we think that there are some possible biases that can change the questions you ask. And so when we look at their scientific approach, it would be considered non-standard. And we just ask that it would be more standard and more rigorous. It's like this because this is how we, always, we have always done it. I think there are some um, influential people who... Didn't have any problem with the last round because it worked for them. Uh, it worked for their blood marker of interest that you can change someone's LDL, LDLC, which is a calculated value in Canada. That's a lipoprotein that carries cholesterol around your body and changes a lot with diet. And so We have had a focus on that and even our current one is, that's the only biomarker that's mentioned in the food guide and those other hormones changes that I talked about is not mentioned and the probably stronger markers like triglycerides and HDL, the good cholesterol, they show better improvements with the kind of diet that I've just been talking about as well.
5: Carol expanded more on why perhaps the process that Health Canada used wasn't as thoroughly scientific as we would hope.
4: Why we might end up with the food guide that we have just from earlier. So I think rather than a scientific document, this is a political document. I think that uh, Health Canada, while well-intentioned, did not have the people power, the time, and the finances to do a proper scientific review. And so it's understandable that they would go and look to other countries to try and save on, find some economies there. But those uh, other guidelines were deemed unscientific because they didn't do a proper review either. So I think that we're in this bit of a catch-22.
5: Although there were still some shortcomings with the guide and the process to create it, it is overall a huge improvement that will hopefully positively impact Canadians. So we've talked about a healthy diet in general, and the higher fat diet paleo, but another trendy diet we're sure you've heard of is the keto diet. This is also a low-carb, high-fat diet, but with much more of an emphasis on the high-fat portion, with it making up 60-80% to 80% of your intake. This approach is meant to promote ketosis, a state in which the body burns fast for energy instead of relying on sugars from carbohydrates. But while keto seems to be all the rage, with proponents claiming everything from increased weight loss to better overall health, is there any science to back up the ketogenic diet? Well, it turns out that keto is actually used in a medical context to help patients manage certain conditions, including diabetes and epilepsy. In patients with epilepsy, for example, both high and low blood sugar levels can trigger a seizure. Ketogenic diets promote more protein intake, which in turn helps to stabilize blood sugar levels. In children and adults who do not respond to seizure medications, a low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet has been shown to actually help reduce seizures. Keto diets are being recommended for patients with diabetes as a way to help improve their glycemic control. Dr. Carol Loffelman spoke in depth about the insulin response system, which also benefits from the keto diet. Max sat down with Dr. Hoon Ki-sung, who received his MD and PhD in South Korea before hopping over the pond. 2014, Dr. Sung established his own lab and studies adipose and metabolic biology in the translational medicine program at SickKids Research Institute. Recently, Dr. Hoon Ki has taken an interest in intermittent fasting and published a paper in Cell Research that has gained international attention for its mechanistic look into fat changes resulting from intermittent fasting.
3: For me, I am doing uh, 16-8, meaning that I'm not eating for 16 hours but um, my all eating is happening within eight hours. If you search internet about intermittent fasting, there are lots of uh, different types of intermittent fasting, like uh, 5.2 IF intermittent fasting or 16.8 or five days per month. Evolutionary human beings and human fat is most, one of the most important organ to survive during this, you know, ice age or, you know, food scarcity. And especially we are very very interested in the animals, the hibernating animals. The fat tissue is very, very important because they can store a lot of energy in the fat white adipose tissue. But this human being these days, we don't use the stored energy at all because we always eat something so we have sufficient or more than sufficient energy that's why our fat uses only one function of our fat we use only one function storage function we never ever use the stored energy from the fat white adipose tissue is like a regular fat we think we can think about But brown adipose tissue, maybe some uh, people may don't know about this one because in human and adult human, we believe that brown adipose tissue is not existing anymore. Brown adipose tissue is heat-producing organ. Uh, During our perinatal uh, period, brown adipose tissue is very important to maintain our uh, body temperature. But in adult it was questionable whether we still have brown adipose tissue or not but uh, recently it was discovered that brown adipose tissue is still existing in our adult body so and it is activated by cold or exercise but whether it is related with the fasting or not is not known yet yeah so brown adipose tissue is a uh, heat producing fat tissue to cope with cold weather while white adipose tissue is just, you know, energy storage organ. Uh, Obviously, intermittent fasting has a profound impact on everywhere in our body. But what we found is white fat color change was dramatic even one day fasting. That makes sense because uh, during the fasting time we should use the energy from the fat tissue. So that's why dramatic change has been happening in white adipose tissue. And that's why we just focus on white adipose tissue. What is going to happen there? Was it conversion of white to brown tissue or transformation of white? Yeah, actually, that is still not very clear whether we are stimulating a stem cell to differentiate into brown-like cell. In white adipose tissue or we are transforming white fat into brown like fat so here I'm saying brown like fat because this brown like fat is different from brown fat they are in white adipose tissue but they look like brown like fat brown fat that's why we call them beige fat Uh, when we did an isocaloric study because you know there is another type of a diet program like calorie restriction but our aim is you know without calorie restriction whether just eating pattern change within a couple of hours can have a calorie restriction like benefit or not so that's why uh, you know when we did an animal study we fast animals for one day but the other two days they are uh, eating whatever they want so actually then uh, they compensate uh, the eating the amount of the food for two days then it was almost the same amount of uh, 3 days of free feeding animals uh, food intake amount so that's why without any calorie restriction we have some metabolic benefit
5: Additionally, a recent paper published in Cell Metabolism looked at the relationship between fasting and the circadian rhythm, our body's natural clock.
3: They actually specifically tested whether circadian uh, rhythm dependent fasting is better or not. The paper actually say that it is totally independent, circadian rhythm independent, but fasting dependent benefit is existing. So meaning that maybe regardless of a circadian rhythm, maybe fasting itself is actually getting some benefit or fasting itself is actually dominating uh, or override the circadian rhythm.
5: Dr. Sang also talked about some limitations or adverse effects of intermittent fasting, things often not highlighted in the majority of internet literature.
3: We also observed some sort of adverse effects of intermittent fasting. For example, what if we stop? We found that there is yo-yo phenomenon. If you stop intermittent fasting, the body weight gain is sometimes going up very quickly, but it is also very important how, why this is happening. So then we can provide much better way of diet program.
5: Running off of that, Dr. Sung also spoke to why looking at IF-resistant models are interesting. state of the IF field and where he thinks IF is going in the future.
3: We use some genetic models, genetically modified uh, diabetes model or obese model. Sometimes uh, intermittent fasting fasting didn't work for them, but we found that there is some different benefit from that uh, model. So that's why uh, we are studying more tissue, different tissue, as well as uh, different model, but also a potential adverse effect as well. You know, if uh, we can figure out that issue, why it didn't work, then maybe we can actually develop some new drug target, or new method of intermittent fasting, or combination of a drug and maybe exercise with intermittent fasting. So that's why, you know, whenever we have this issue, we actually, we are happier, because you know, if you say, you know, everything is working very well, it's not very interesting. Sometimes we don't see huge benefit, then we are very curious why. Genetic, genetically modified model, O B O B mouse model, so which is a leptin deficient animal model. So They are very, very obese. They are very diabetic. So it didn't work. So, I mean, in terms of the body weight, it didn't work. But glucose homeostasis, still intermittent fasting was improving is glucose homeostasis so that's why even if there is no body weight benefit maybe some other benefit is existing but in the future study we want to study about you know the molecular mechanism how intermittent fasting is bringing some metabolic benefit even without body weight uh, loss
5: The landscape of nutrition has been changing, and so far in this episode we've explored various types of diets that have gained popularity in recent years, as well as recent changes to Canada's food guide. Where are we headed from here, though? What is the future of food? There seems to be an increasing public recognition of the way that land is used and the ethical issues surrounding food production and agriculture, as well as growing concern about climate change. Reflective of this, several companies are bringing meatless meats to the mainstream, with features that make them more like meat than ever before, including similar textures and even bleeding, which is an effect created with beet juice. Meatless meats are made with plant-based proteins from sources like potato, wheat, and pea proteins. The world of food science is transforming food as we know it. We want to investigate one of these new options a little bit closer, Beyond Meat, which is now available at A&W. So what makes it so special? Swapna chatted with Amy Khan, an MD-PhD at the University of Toronto, who also joined us for a 50th episode on medical devices. She shared why she's excited about Beyond Meat and what makes it stand out for her. So I'm not a vegetarian. Sometimes I like eating meat, but
0: I've noticed as time goes on, after seeing the moral and ethical concerns regarding animal husbandry, I think I've been feeling more and more guilty about eating meat. And... I wanted to see if it would be possible to decrease how much meat I eat overall and see if there was an actual acceptable meat alternative that was yummy and tasted like meat. And that's a huge challenge to meet like a consumer's expectations about what meat tastes like, what it feels like in your mouth, if it bleeds, how it smells like, how it works in a burger. And I I didn't think that the beyond meat burger could meet those expectations sounded like it did meet those expectations (laughs) and that is really a motivation the ethical um, considerations behind it and the environmentally friendliness
5: of those options as amy shares she is a fan of beyond meat as a meatless burger both for ethical reasons but also based on the taste
0: it is so good it looks like meat it smells like meat it sizzles like meat. I was watching the grill cook cook it. I feel vegetarians somehow sometimes feel maybe like a second-class citizen because they don't have as much care and attention brought to their kinds of products. This burger is a burger. It it looks, it tastes, it feels, it smells just like meat. It, it's a full experience. Exactly. It's a full experience of a burger, how you envision a burger in your mind. And what I like best about it is I I feel that it gives meat eaters, like me, because I am a meat eater, I'm not a vegetarian, it gives me a way not to eat meat, but still feel satisfied.
5: Amy is one of the many Canadians choosing to include more meatless meat or alternatives to their diets. What else does the future of food hold? McLean's projects that Canadians will continue to become more informed consumers. The way that we access food will continue to blur the line between grocery store and restaurant, With the upswing of a variety of different delivery trends and that we'll see a continuation of a growing market for greater choice and more individualized options a national geographic commentary touches on the possibilities of gene editing edible packages and the innovative greenhouses changing the way we grow and consume food another direction we see is nutrigenomics but what is this nutrigenomics is the idea of a personalized diet tailored to your very own genome swapna sat down with professor divan nilsson who is an assistant professor at McGill University, School of Human Nutrition, to learn more.
1: So, nutrigenomics is the science of how individuals respond differently to the foods that they consume, and it can encompass two components. It can really be how you metabolize nutrients differently depending on variation in your genes, but it can also be how the foods that you eat affect the expression of your genes and how that can influence your physiology and health outcomes.
0: Why would we want to tailor our diets to our
1: genome? It's a great question. And actually, there's some debate on that in terms of who would be able to feasibly have access to their genetic information, because right now we're not at a time where people are routinely being tested to learn about their genetics. But we do see the availability happening more through consumer genetic tests. People do have the option of learning about this, um, but they do have to pay to, to have that testing done. But there is some, some evidence that tailoring the diet to an individual's genetic profile could have some health benefits. And there's some nice examples, for example, caffeine metabolism, sodium response, saturated fat response, how the the genetics really do make a difference in how someone will respond to those components of the diet. And so there could be a health advantage in knowing that and and kind of restricting either your sodium or your, your saturated fat or caffeine if you know that you would do better. Uh, to restrict those components of the diet. But also I think that nutrigenomic research can reinforce some public health messages around nutrition. So we we know in general people shouldn't be con- over-consuming sodium or saturated fat, and people should be mindful of caffeine. There have been some initial studies that have not really supported that there could be more favorable effects of tailoring the diet to the genome than just sort of following general healthy eating recommendations, but there are some limitations to to some of the previous work. And so we really need prospective studies where you you know the genome in advance, you put people on a specific diet and you follow them over time to look at the the outcomes and their health status. And uh, those studies are are just getting underway. There is a study happening uh, here in Canada, in in London, Ontario, of the success that individuals will have with weight loss if they follow a a DNA-based diet plan, versus a a controlled diet that's not tailored to the genome. So I'm quite interested to see what the uh, outcome of that study will be. Um, So there's still more research to be done to really understand the the benefits of tailoring at the genome level. But an individualized diet, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be tailored to genetics. You can individualize a diet based on current health status, based on current nutrient intakes. If you know that the nutrient profile of someone's typical diet is lacking in certain ways, you can individualize based on that information. So there's, there's many different ways you can individualize a diet. And um, I do think that we will be seeing revolutions in, in dietetics and in diet recommendations that factor in a lot more individual factors. It doesn't need to just be genetics. I, I think we're going in that direction eventually, uh, but there's still some work to be done with, with the genetic content. But you can individualize on a number of variables, and I think that's becoming more popular. Yeah.
0: So something else that I wanted to ask you was, what does the Israel 21C study tell us? And as we learn more about the field of nutrigenomics, are we finding that what we know about nutrition, for example, how our bodies respond to ingesting sugar, is really just a smaller part of a much bigger picture?
1: The the Israel 21C study is really fascinating. I think that was just such a cool investigation, and the findings that came out of it are so fascinating. So for anyone who's not familiar with that study yet, uh, it was uh, an investigation of a lot of phenotypic individuals, uh, a lot of say a inf- lot of phenotypic information on individuals in terms of their their body weight status, their health status, their dietary intakes. They did continuous glucose monitoring on those individuals for a week, so that's every five minutes you get a glucose reading of the blood sugar levels. So a lot of data, and they used um, very advanced computational methods with machine learning to try and understand relationships between all of that data they had collected and how someone's blood sugar would respond um, and so they were able to identify uh, foods that that these uh, research participants responded to differently and, and in some cases or I guess in most cases meals that were very similar there were different responses at the individual level and it could have been due to many of the variables that they had in their algorithm, whether it was due to microbiome differences, physical activity differences, they even considered sleep. Um, In the paper, they talked about how even for the same person eating the same food, depending on how much sleep or how much physical activity they had done before they ate those foods, that would impact their blood sugar response afterwards. So there's so many moving parts. It's a a lot of complexity to really study how someone responds to something that they consume. But it it did show that one size does not fit all, and people respond differently to the foods they eat. So I think in nutrition, we're in a really exciting time to understand at a finer grain level how people respond to foods and how you can really try to increase the health benefits of a, of a nutritious diet for individuals. It will be a challenge because it's not, even if you have the perfect diet, tailored for that specific person there's no guarantee that they can or will follow it there's sort of economic reasons to consider there's the food supply so there's sort of a lot of effort between multiple players that will will happen I hope for the future of food to have all these different these different variables considered and help people maintain and and achieve a healthful dietary pattern.
5: Looking forward, the future of food is in our hands as consumers, and leaning towards more choices, including ones that are ethically and environmentally conscious, together with increasingly individualized diets. We hope you learned as much as we did about the direction Canada is taking for nutritional guidelines and the mechanisms underlying diets, such as low-carb, high-fat, and intermittent fasting, in addition to their advantages and disadvantages. Special thanks to our episode team, James, Swapna, Amber, and Max, who is also our audio editor. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. Send us an email or tweet us at Podcast. And until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.
3: Actually, I didn't eat the breakfast. I ate four for my lunch. Like Vietnamese, I love me a good Vietnamese soup.